0: Stay Hungry, Stay Foolish.
1: Researchers have found that the accelerated pace of modern office life is taking its toll on productivity, employee engagement, creativity and well-being. Faced with a relentless flood of information and distractions, Our brain tries to process everything at once, increasing our stress, decreasing our effectiveness, and negatively impacting our performance. Ironically, we have become too overworked, unfocused, and busy to stop and ask ourselves the important question, what can we do to break the cycle of being constantly under pressure, always on, overloaded with information, and in environments filled with distractions? Do we need to accept this as the new workplace reality? and continue to survive rather than thrive in the modern-day work environment? What if your organization's culture could be fueled by creativity and productivity? It is possible to train the brain to respond differently to today's constant pressures and distractions. The secret to dealing with life's interruptions is incredibly simple. Give each distraction just one second's time, mindfully. Many companies turn to mindfulness to help their workers become more attentive and less distracted. Today's guest has worked with a multitude of Fortune 500 companies in over 22 countries. He is founder and managing director of The Potential Project, and the focus of today's show is his wonderful book, One Second Ahead. We welcome Rasmus Hugart.
2: Thanks very much, Aiden. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. Did I get the pronunciation right there? It was beautiful. It was beautiful. <laughs> Danish with a bit of Irish accent. Appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> I gave it one second, man.
1: So uh, let's jump into it because we've so much to get through. I watched one of your many, many TED Talks, one of your many, many videos and keynotes on YouTube. I watched you talk about how you got into this and you tell the story of your first experience with trying to incorporate mindfulness into the corporate workplace. It'd be great if you shared that with the audience.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, do we really have to go through that experience again? That was painful. I had been uh, been practicing and and teaching mindfulness back then for about 15 years. And I had a research career and I joined the corporate world. And at some point I realized that, that I could do something more meaningful and impactful in my life. So I decided to start to bring mindfulness into companies and uh, had the first client signed up, which was the leadership group of a pretty significant European company. We had a full day organized and I was just so excited and so happy. And throughout the full morning session, I really put them to the practice and shared stories about great yogis from the, from the Himalayas that could levitate and do all kinds of amazing things due to their meditation practices. And I thought it went really, really well. And then uh, there was a lunch break and after lunch, I came back into the room and stood there waiting for the for the group to arrive. But they never came back.
2: Oh, my God. And, <laughs> oh, my God. That's
0: exactly what I felt. I mean, I was, first of all, really hurt. Uh, and secondly, really disappointed because I thought what I was sharing really made a lot of sense. But what I realized was very importantly that if you want to bring something that is perceived as soft and fluffy and private and personal, like mindfulness, and you want to bring that into a, a corporate leadership setting, you really need to make a seamless integration whereby people feel the benefits and get some really tangible, practical, easy-to-apply tools from day one or from minute one. If you can't do that, it's going to be mindfulness for the sake of mindfulness. It's not going to help leaders. It's not going to help employees. So that kind of integration needs to be made. So that's that's what we then spent three years on developing together with researchers and business leaders and and uh, and some of the masters
2: of mindfulness and that's how this company was started from a big failure that's fantastic and that resilience to bounce back is so key and we're going to talk a little bit more about the integrating
1: of mindfulness into the corporate culture because oftentimes i'm sure when you give a keynote there's a great excitement it's like there's a big splash of excitement but what you want is actually a ripple of the effect going on for a long time throughout the organization and you talk about four criteria that helps us get mindfulness into the workplace
0: yeah so there are a few practical things that just needs to be in place it's right an inspirational talk is not going to change anything if you want to change habits and cultures there are a few things that need to be into place and one of them is you have to integrate it into the business reality so you need to understand what are the business objectives and then tie mindfulness practice to that Let's take an example. If client engagement or client loyalty is important for you, how can mindfulness help? If in a call center, the people answering the phones, they're actually present and interested in the people calling, that's going to enhance client engagement and loyalty. So that's an example of how you can tie it to business objectives. That's the first thing. The second thing is always to make it scientific. If you don't make it scientific, leadership and so on won't buy into it. Thirdly, you need to create a good business case That is very, very important and stop talking about meditation, stop talking about religion, stop talking about anything that is soft, fluffy or weird and just talk about the, the neural rewiring of the brain that mindfulness is.
1: And let's talk about the challenges because many of us feel this, but you put a kind of
2: a structure on it you talk about the
1: paid reality we all live in today.
0: Right so the the
2: paid reality I think is something that's all of the the listeners right now will probably
0: recognize the paid reality is is when we're under pressure we're always on information overloaded and working environments that are distracted the PAID and and what is happening in the paid reality is that our attention is under attack and researchers have found that because of this paid reality our attention has decreased radically over the past few decades and they now see that forty seven percent of our working hours we're distracted. We're basically not focused on what we're doing right now, but our mind is involuntarily wandering somewhere else because of attention deficit traits. Many of us I'll just gonna throw this
1: one out to you. This is something that I've observed just anecdotally and just watching people is people say they're busier than ever. Yes. When they're in the workplace, they're not that effective or they're not that focused. So they're meeting or they're, they're wandering or they're straying or they're going for coffees. And it's like that deep work, they can't get to that place of going, I'm going to absolutely nail this off my list today. And it, it seems to drag on for a long time. Then they bring their work home with them. Then they're stressed at home. Then they're not spending time with their family and friends and children. And it adds more and more stress into this mixing bowl of stress.
0: You're so right. There's absolutely no doubt about the lack of ability of doing deep work is one of the big, big, big challenges that companies and people are facing nowadays. What is the challenge about today's work is that, as opposed to many years ago, is that we are constantly faced with multiple challenges, multiple pieces of information that is asking for our attention. Decades ago, you know, we would be sitting with a typewriter. Today, we're sitting with a computer that is constantly giving us pings and pongs and notifications of all kinds of things that we can or should do, meaning we are constantly taken away from what we're doing, which basically makes us pretty shallow and it makes us multitask. And multitasking is obviously the way of work nowadays. And the unfortunate thing is, First of all, mon- multitasking is impossible simply because we just have one attention that we can point one direction at a time. Not like a computer. That's where the the, the, top, the, the the term comes from. A computer has more processes, so it can do more processes at the same time. But we just have one brain and one attention, so we can't multitask. That's the first bad news. The second is when we try to, and we are basically switch tasking from one to the other, from one to the other constantly. We are less effective, we make more mistakes, we're less creative, we're less resilient, and ultimately we are, according to neuroscience,
2: basically shrinking our brain in our attempt of doing more.
1: Add to that then
2: our media consumption or our content consumption. So
1: in the days pre digital, if you wanted to consume content, you had to read it. And and you even see this with PDFs and things like that. People want the short version of everything. This means that we're not actually training ourselves. or We're not training our
0: attention at all anymore. That's absolutely true. We want it short. We want it quick on YouTube videos or whatever social media people are using, a Facebook or whatever. Videos that are longer than one minute are just not watched anymore. Everything has to be short. And that means we're just consuming one after the other short, shallow piece of information And as you say, never really training our ability and our discipline of staying focused on one thing that is most important. With Stephen Covey terminology, we end up sorting a lot of
2: gravel and not moving the big rocks. And that obviously is a huge problem for our productivity and our well-being. And you talk about us now having to manage four things. So you say attention, choices, actions, and successes. It'd be great to share that with our audience. Right. so, So I think What we're all trying to achieve at work is success
0: or results. And the only way we can do that is by doing the right actions. I mean, great results doesn't come out of the thin air. It comes from doing the right thing. And right actions come from making the right choices. But we can only make the right choices when we actually have a good, calm, clear attention right here and right now on what we need to do. So there's a direct correlation between our level of attention and the results or the success that we're achieving and that is something that people are missing a lot nowadays for sure i was
1: thinking about this and through watching your talks and added to the book it's becoming a competitive advantage i mean you see so many companies investing in ai for example artificial intelligence to optimize the company or to get better margins and i often think what if they invested in things like mindfulness or attention training? Get the best out of your people rather than trying to squeeze the margin. This would be an amazing way because 50%, like you say, is a huge deficit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I would n- never say that AI or, or, or generally optimizing margins is a bad idea. I think that's a really good idea. But do that and focus on people because the main asset of any company, no matter what company, is its people. And the main asset of a person, it's not our fingers or our feet. It's our brains. It is what we can do with our minds. Performance comes from the mind. Effectiveness comes from the mind. Innovation comes from the mind. Resilience comes from the mind. So why not train the mind? I mean, we are all training our bodies to be fit and strong so we can walk up the stairs, so we can do the stuff we have to do in life. But how many are training their minds? How many are training their brains? How much do we really take care of it? So that is definitely a massively uh, under-focused uh, area. And it's a, it's an area that is really gaining attention from uh, from companies all over the world right now. Because they're realizing that the mind is at the forefront of all that companies
1: need because it goes beyond just becoming task-based, doesn't it? Like you, so you train people to become more focused essentially. I mean, that's one of the benefits of this training, but it trains you to actually connect dots that you would not have seen before. And we talk about, you know, if you, it, companies are under pressure through disruption or threats from new entrants into new market entrance, and you need people to be at their best game, as you said, innovation is key. So if people can look beyond their own industry through this training, that's a massive advantage when it comes to strategy.
0: It definitely is. So when we're talking about the whole digital transformation that is basically uprooting all traditional patterns of doing business nowadays digital disruption is changing business landscapes all over and what is required to stay abreast of those changes it is obviously the ability to look around corners the ability to look into the future to see tomorrow and not to see yesterday and if we look at some of the big icons some of the big innovators corporate innovators i think one of the best examples is obviously steve jobs who took the iphone and the ipod and a number of other things and put that all into one device the the iphone Uh, and i mean we don't need to talk about how famous that became but he basically said that the iphone came out of deep meditation practice he said when you sit down and just do nothing At the beginning, it's a mess, but then slowly you gain clarity and you start to see things much more clear than you do when you're just walking or running around and doing work. And he said that that is what allowed him to come up with the idea of combining all these things and doing it in in a way that has now generated uh, almost 15 years, uh, massive, massive global success. And we see the same thing in many other companies like Aetna and Salesforce and LinkedIn and so on, where the CEOs and the C-suite leaders are really taking mindfulness practice seriously. So I think I agree with you that innovation can only really happen if we have minds that are clear and we can't have that if we're just constantly multitasking, doing shallow work.
1: You mentioned a key thing there. I thought you mentioned LinkedIn Salesforce and indeed Apple, where the leadership is bought in. And I loved what you said earlier on where you have to add the science in order to get, for example, a CFO who's not willing to part with brush his budget to invest in mindfulness because he sees it as soft or fluffy. So you talked about some of the science. It'd be great to share some of the science. What's going on inside when we have a constant practice of mindfulness and awareness.
0: Right, so, so I, I could say a lot about that. And, and having a background as a researcher, I'm compelled to do that, but I won't tire all the, all, the, all, the, all the listeners with this. I'll just say that the main and most important thing that is happening is that our prefrontal cortex, which is just behind our forehead on the right-hand side, that that part of the brain is strengthened. And researchers can see that after eight weeks of doing a daily mindfulness practice, it's actually thicker than it was before the eight weeks. Now the prefrontal cortex is associated with two things. First of all, our focus, our ability to be present, focused, attentive, aware in the moment. That is obviously really, really important. The second thing that it is associated with is what is called executive function, which is in lay terms, our ability moment to moment to monitor our mind and choose the most important and relevant thoughts, words, and actions, basically so that we have strong self-management skills, that we can act in the right way as leaders, that we can come up with good ideas when we need to. So that is ultimately what is happening in the brain when we practice mindfulness, thereby allowing us to be pretty much better at anything else we need to do.
1: It's funny you mentioned about how nobody trains the brain. And I used to play professional sport and it's one of the reasons that I'm so fascinated by this area of neuroscience and the competitive edge that the mind can give you. There's no excuse today when I was playing, there was no YouTube, it was in its infancy. So there was not the amount of content, even like your own talks up there and books like your book. Still, even with all this, people prefer to look towards mindlessness. So how do I turn off and watch Kim Kardashian? It's a way to go. I just need something mind numbing because work has been so stressful. And I just think, imagine you invested even 10 minutes of that in this to get started. And that gets me to this question, which is how can somebody get started in a very minimal way so they can start the practice? They can start the ball rolling.
0: That's a great and the most important question. I would say the first thing is uh, download an app and there are great apps out there. We developed uh, one called potential project mindfulness, which I can obviously recommend. Um, very short and practical instructions. But just any app is going to be a good help. So an app is going to give you the guidance to actually do the mindfulness practice. So you don't need to sit and think about what to do. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to make a commitment that you will do it, whether that is every day or twice a day, uh, for a period of time that you determine. I recommend trying it out for three weeks, 10 minutes every day. Because after three weeks, 90% of people will feel a significant change in their mood, in their energy, in their focus, and or in their stress. This is just based on our own research. So three weeks is enough to really find a big difference in how you experience life. How do you shift
1: gear after that, Rasmus? So you've locked that in, you've got the habit in place, and you're
2: finding the app is, is not giving you enough. How do you then shift gear and go up a level? Ah, So if you want to do more, then you add two minutes every
0: week or every other week. Don't try to be too ambitious to start off with and never go more than 20 minutes. Most people won't be able to do more than that because life is busy and, and they feel they have other priorities. So slowly build up the practice. Don't start too, uh, too long time because you simply won't be able to do it. And then you'll feel like you're a failure and you'll let go of the practice. So so that's not uh, that's not a good idea. When
1: we look at the advantages beyond what you talked about the brain, there's massive physiological benefits to mindfulness as well that you you talk about, for example, stronger immune system.
0: Yes. So, yes, we have a, a strong immune system because what happens when you practice mindfulness is that your parasympathetic nervous system is activated which is basically what our immune system thrives on. So when you practice mindfulness, you allow your body to heal and and do what it needs to do to be healthy. So that is one thing. It also balances your heart rate, meaning if it's too high, it'll go lower. If it's too low, it'll go higher. It even improves your skin quality. Uh, You have better blood pressure. There's just a lot of things that that is impacted physiologically. And the same thing, mentally, we get more focused. We get more happy. We even get more kind from practicing mindfulness. So it's really hard to, to argue against it.
1: You shared that there's rules of mental effectiveness. For example,
2: there's two rules that you really focus upon within the book. In mindfulness practice, it's you know basically what we're training is our focus. We're sitting there, we're focused on our
0: breath. And for every moment we're focused on the breath, we become more focused. And then at some point, we get distracted and we notice we're distracted. So we're basically gaining awareness of our mind and our distractions. Those are the two muscles that we're training in mindfulness. Then we need to learn to apply those into how we deal with our everyday stream of work. And two rules is the first one, focus on what you choose. So that should be rule number one for everything you do. That means you're sitting at your desk and you're writing an important email and you do just that. That is your choice of focus. You stay focused with that. If some people start a conversation right behind your back, your brain will have the tendency to wander back there. But this rule is very simple. Just stay focused with the email. And when your mind starts to ruminate about a birthday party you're going to later in the day, Again, the rule is simple. Go back to the email. Just stay with that email. So that's rule number one. It's really effective in just staying focused on what we're doing, not multitasking, not switch tasking, not doing too many things at a time. Then the other rule is choose your distractions mindfully. There are certain distractions in work life. Like if your boss comes and asks for your help, you obviously don't want to just ignore because you're writing an email. So you want to attend to that. It is a mindful choice of distraction. So the boss is a distraction. You attend to that 100%. That means you let go of the email, focus on that conversation. When it's done, you go back and you finish the email. So it's basically, you could say single tasking or monotasking or doing one thing at a time and being really mindfully deliberate about what it is that you're paying attention to from moment to moment
1: you talk about the idea of mental bandwidth i thought that was a great term that you used
2: and that it's a training of that really that we're doing with this work it absolutely is so the more we multitask and the more we just fill our plate
0: with details the more our mental bandwidth will shrink just like the bandwidth of a a computer connection and the more mindful we are the more mindfulness we train the more bandwidth we'll have to really focus and hone in on a single task while still being aware of what's going on around us without being distracted by it. So that mental bandwidth is, is obviously the, uh, the currency of performance and
2: innovation nowadays. Without that, we can't do anything well. And I'd love to, to share Rasmus as well, because I had your friend Daniel Siegel on a few weeks ago
1: and I've been practicing his wheel of awareness and you talk about open awareness within the book, but I, I went to a concert last night, for Arnolds, who's f- phenomenal. And I have to say, I, I actually felt more present in the concert than I ha- ever had before through doing the work, because I felt I was almost on the stage. you know, there was no distraction. I wasn't thinking about the day of work, the next day, etc. that made me even happier in work. This is why, I mean, I think it's so intertwined all, all this work that you do is so essential in, in life, but also then it, it rolls over into work because then you're more effective in work and that makes you happier. And then you're happier when you go home. So it's all, it's all the same cycle, but one of the keys you talk about, which is more useful even at home is the idea of open awareness.
0: Yes, definitely open awareness is the is the awareness that I talked about before. So in mindfulness we train focus, which is this sharp focused attention on one thing of our choice. And awareness is the almost like the landscape lens, the 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 part of our mind that observes what's going on around us and inside of us, that knows our emotions as they are unfolding. Uh, so open awareness is the ability to really be universally open aware to everything that's going on around you and obviously when you go into a concert that is fantastic because that means you're taking in the music you're taking in the performance you're taking in the energy in the room and obviously the concert becomes a much better concert for those reasons Um, if we can do the same thing in work life we can be really attuned to what's going on in a meeting understanding the emotions understanding the dynamics between people and thereby have a much stronger, much bigger impact in that meeting, leading more out of wisdom and awareness rather than out of just habits and opinions and judgments. So open awareness is a critical, critical mental skill that, that we all need to have. And the more we have, the better.
1: You mentioned the app earlier on as a way to get started and then adding two minutes every week thereafter. But you share a great acronym here that's very, very easy and, and easy
2: to implement, which is the ABCD approach. So mindfulness is a very old tradition coming from the East and it's been around for thousands of years. And it can be pretty
0: confusing if you want to try to read all the literature yourself. So we working as we're working with hundreds of thousands of people in, in business who have a bit of attention deficit trait. We comprised all of those teachings into the simple acronym ABCD. And it basically consists of the A for anatomy. So when we're practicing mindfulness, we want to sit comfortably and with closed eyes, breathing through the nose, sitting with a straight back, and basically getting the body out of the way of the practice because the practice is a mental practice. So that's the A. The B is the breathing. That is the anchor of our attention. So we're basically just focusing on our breath. And without changing it or controlling it, just sitting and ongoing monitoring the flow of in-breathing and breathing out. Then the C stands for counting. So that is counting the breath because it helps us to stay focused on it. And the D stands for distractions. It is basically anything that is not the counting or the breath. And the distractions are basically our friends. They are the biggest helpers in mindfulness practice. Because any distraction is basically an item telling you that you're off track. So we shouldn't be unhappy about our distractions. We should be grateful to them. And when we encounter them, just say thank you, let go of them, and go back to the breathing again. So mindfulness is a pretty unspiritual, pragmatic,
2: simple practice to do. There is nothing esoteric about it. The title of the book, One Second Ahead that has a lot of meaning in it.
1: And it'd be great to share that as a kind of a finale for today's show.
0: Right? So the title of one second ahead may sound a little contradictory, because mindfulness is about being in the present and not ahead of ourselves. Uh, It came about from a finance executive that uh, I worked with personally a number of years ago. And he came to me and, and basically said that he felt that he was too busy. And because he was so busy, he was on autopilot. He felt like every time an email came in, he would just respond to that. Every time someone said something, he would just answer. He never had responsivity. He never had like a break to consider what was the best action. And so we engaged in a, in a, in a 10 week program where I coached him how to basically become more mindful, how to do the mindfulness practice, how to adopt that into his email practices and meetings and so on. And after these 10 weeks, we had the last session, and I asked him what he felt that he got out of it. And he said that he got one second. And at first, I was a little bit startled. I thought, this is this is really poor math. I mean, he spent so many hours, and he just got one second. That didn't seem right. But his explanation was that he felt like he got one second of freedom in his mind. So that when somebody approached him and said something, he felt he had a second of freedom to consider the best response to that situation. When an email came in, he had the mental freedom to consider the best response. So mindfulness took him from reactivity to responsivity, from being in the autopilot to being in the driver's seat of his life. And that ultimately is what mindfulness provides us, a one-second moment of freedom in our mind to choose best respond to anything that we encounter in life. It's a phenomenal goal.
1: And something that I hope we've shared well, and even if a few people take it on, we'll have changed their life. And I congratulate you on your fantastic work, because I know as well, Rasmus, you do a lot of this work and you're not doing it just for the profit. You pour a lot of money back into worthy causes.
0: That is right. Our organization is an extremely values and mission driven organization. Yes. So there are no returns to shareholders or any big salaries. Uh, everything we do is reinvested in your organization or given to, to charities. That is the purpose of, of our work.
1: And finally, you have a new book, The Mind of the Leader, coming out soon. Where can people find out about that and indeed your work with The Potential Project?
0: The book, The Mind of Leader, is published by uh, Harvard Business Review. So you can go on their website or you can just go on Amazon. It's, it's a bestseller from Harvard already. And if you want to know more about our work and how we can support your company,
2: then go to our website, which is potentialproject.com founder of The Potential Project and author of One Second Ahead and the new book, The Mind of the Leader, Rasmus Hougart. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Aidan. A pleasure.